the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. This afternoon, we're starting a new series entitled Six M People, exploring six particular expressions of how the life of Christ within us through his spirit can, if we're willing to do our part, bring about positive change in the various places where we live and work. This series returns to many of ideas that we explored recently in our Frontline Sunday series, and it's a reminder of some of the themes that we thought about some years ago in a series entitled Fruitfulness on the Frontline. This afternoon, I'd like us to do a few things. Firstly, we're going to briefly explore the theme of fruitfulness by taking a whistle-stop tour through a few passages of Scripture to see for ourselves how that motif plays out within the sweep of the Bible. And secondly, we're going to take another brief look at a passage we considered in depth quite recently in our series Living the Fruit of the Spirit. Familiar words from Galatians chapter 5 as we consider the first of the six M themes, that of modelling godly character. But before we do that, we're going to view a short video and we're going to take a brief look at one of my favourite Old Testament stories, since I think it very helpfully frames the 6M idea that we're going to be exploring. If you've had a chance to glance at the teaching programme for this term, you'll have already discovered the 6Ms we are going to consider together over these next six weeks. They are perhaps best expressed in question form, since each theme requires us to consider both a personal and corporate response. So the question is, on our front lines, how might we model godly character, or make good work, or minister grace and love, or mould culture, or be a mouthpiece for truth and justice, or be a messenger of the gospel? And these are all very important questions, especially if we wish to live out spirit-filled lives that reveal the character of God. A character most clearly demonstrated for us, of course, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Each week we're going to watch a short video showing a lived example of what it looks like to be a 6M person in the everyday experiences of people's lives. And in a few moments we're going to hear Meron's story. And it's that desire to reveal God's character on our front lines as Meron has demonstrated, that leads me to that Old Testament story I mentioned. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 5, so if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to that reference, then we can read it together. And one of the reasons why the story appeals to me is that it's the story of an ordinary person, just like Meron, or you, or I. Someone who takes the decision to reveal the extraordinariness of the God they follow. So let's read, uh, read a few verses, shall we, of this familiar story. 2 Kings chapter 5, reading from verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master could see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. 
By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and says, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent him the message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. So, on this apparently ordinary day like any other, an enemy raiding party comes down from the east, captures a young girl who becomes a slave to an unfamiliar household, in an unfamiliar land, working for the enemy commander's pagan wife. The unnamed girl is isolated from her community of believers, she's wrenched from her family and friends, she has nothing to look forward to except a life of slavery. She is just the girl in the wrong job, in the wrong place, among the wrong people, with the wrong present and the wrong future. Given her situation, her response to hearing the news of Naaman's illness is remarkable, isn't it? Rather than wishing him a slow and painful death, she chooses to pursue blessing and not punishment. She pursues love and not loathing. And so in an act of profound faith, she confidently expresses her belief in God. I think she could have been forgiven for coming to the conclusion that since she had been taken into captivity and her life turned upside down in such a dramatic way, that maybe the pagan gods of her enemy were in fact stronger than the God of Israel. But that isn't the conclusion that she comes to. Despite her circumstances, she chooses to speak up. And using only 19 words, she sets into motion a remarkable series of events. This is what she says. If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Through one simple, short, love-impelled, faith-soaked sentence, uttered by a child, an extraordinary chain of events was triggered. And if we were to read on in the story, we'd eventually come to not only a miraculous moment of physical healing, but also we'd encounter a miraculous moment of spiritual revelation. Naaman, in the presence of all of his servants, standing in front of God's prophet Elijah, says, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. And that's why I think the story is particularly relevant for us this afternoon. Because we see within it a great example of what it looks like to be one of God's six M people. The Apostle Paul, writing to his friends in Corinth, talks about how ordinary people following an extraordinary God can make a difference. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. 
Not many of you were wise by human standard. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this story from Two Kings is a great example of faith producing fruit. And being fruitful is something that we are all called to be as we, in partnership with God's Spirit, live out our faith on our front lines. And it's this theme of fruitfulness that we're going to be exploring. And it's one that occurs time and time again in the unfolding story of the Bible. It first appears in Genesis chapter 1. There, of course, we have a clear reference to population growth. God says, be fruitful and multiply. But that simple reference is soon overtaken by fruit being used as a repeated metaphor to describe God-orientated living. Look at this one, for instance, Psalm chapter 1, the first three verses. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but who's delighted in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree, planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither whatever they do prospers and then later in the same collection of psalms in psalm 92 from verse 12 we read this the righteous will flourish like a palm tree they will grow like the cedar of lebanon planted in the house of the lord they will flourish in the courts of our god they will still bear fruit in old age they will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, The Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no wickedness in him. So fruitfulness comes about through being planted in God with our roots firmly established. The prophet Isaiah explores very similar themes when he links fruitfulness to prosperity, both in terms of national survival and influence. Fruitfulness, he says, comes as the result of obedience to God. There's one particular passage that you may know in chapter 5 where the nation is pictured as a vineyard and whether or not it is fruitful depends whether or not the people are obedient to God. And this theme of fruitfulness extends into the New Testament where Jesus, John the Baptist and Paul all explore it through the contrasting metaphor of good and bad fruit. But most familiarly, we see this theme finding its fulfilment in a sense when, taking, when Jesus, talking to his disciples, describes himself as the true vine, the only and true source of fruit-bearing life. And it's only through connectedness to him that fruit can grow. And Paul, of course, picks up on this very theme in the verses that we're going to read in a few moments. We are to promote the growth of good fruit, through our attitudes, through our words, through our actions. And it's important to note there's no implied hierarchy, either in the list of the fruit of the Spirit that we're going to meet, read in a minute from Galatians chapter 5, or in the six M's that we'll be considering. Rather, fruit is anything done with authentic love, 
There's no evidence, for instance, that speaking up for justice is more important than modelling godly character, or making good work is preferable to moulding culture. So with all that in mind, let's turn to the passage, shall we, in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read from verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Now, you may recall that from our series entitled Freedom, Set Free, Live Free, uh, we looked at Paul's letter to the church in Galatia quite recently. And also, we, we looked at this passage in the introduction to the series Living the Fruit of the Spirit. And Paul's main reason for writing to the church in Galatia was to deal with some of the false ideas that were circulating. Teachers from within the Jewish tradition were preaching a different gospel to the true gospel that Paul had preached. Whereas Paul had been very clear that faith and trust in Christ alone was all that was necessarily to be included in God's family, these teachers were insisting that that wasn't enough. Instead, these non-Jew converts to the Christian faith also needed to become Jewish proselytes. They needed to embrace Judaism with all of its laws and all of its customs. And Paul reacts really strongly throughout the first four chapters of the letter. He seeks to remind and persuade his readers that Christ is all that they need. And whilst the law is given to Moses as its right and proper function for the Old Testament people of Israel, now that Christ has come, the way is open for all people from all nations to experience God's blessing. So all those who trust in Christ, whether Jew or non-Jew, are freed from the obligations to live under the disciplinary authority of Torah law. And instead, they should live in freedom. They should live for God, with Christ living within them. They should, as Paul says, walk by the Spirit. But those Jewish teachers who opposed Paul saw the removal of the restraining restriction of the law as a license that would lead to people falling back into pagan immorality. Since without the restraint of the law... Everyone would be free to do whatever they wanted. But as Paul goes on to say, legalism at one extreme, that of keeping all the laws, and license at the other, that of rejecting all rules, 
are completely wrong answers to the question of how we should live as followers of Christ. And so it is in chapter 5 that Paul unpacks how we ought to live. Now, because we've looked extensively at the individual characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit listed in verses 22 to 23 quite recently, I'm not going to deal with them again. But instead, I'd like us to take a step back and consider the foundational things that leads Paul to finish the chapter in the way that he does. Because I think exploring something of Paul's argument in the early part of this section will provide a really helpful basis for this series as a whole. So Paul, in Galatians chapter 5, starts to unpack for us a better way, a God-orientated way to live our lives, the way of the Spirit of God, given to us through Christ. Firstly, Paul says, yes, the gospel of Christ has set us free, so he urges the Galatian Christians to resist any attempt to impose Torah law. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. But Paul goes on to say, that doesn't mean embracing a freedom that then allows for space for our fallen sinful human nature to take over. Instead, this gifted freedom through Christ should lead us towards becoming fully human to serve one another humbly in love. So to the law enforcers, Paul says that what really matters is faith expressed through love. Love enables us to fulfil our calling to be God's image bearers without legalism. To the rule rejectors, Paul says that we should make sure we serve one another humbly in love. Love enables us to use our freedom properly, without selfishness. And Paul recognises that licence is as big a danger as legalism. Firstly, in the section that we have just read together, Paul points out that our sinful natures are a foe and not a friend. He uses the military word aforme in verse 13 in the phrase indulge the flesh. It's a warning to us that if we're not careful, our sinful natures can become a base for military type sorties. One of the biggest mistakes I think we can make in our Christian lives is to think that we can become more and more like Jesus by simply gritting our teeth, by summing up enough willpower to embark on a program of self-improvement. But in truth, seeking an alliance with our sinful nature in an attempt to overcome sin is rather like arming a criminal gang in order to promote law and order. What we need instead, as Johnny reminded us last Sunday morning, is transformation, not self-improvement. We need the Spirit's indwelling if we're going to live lives that better reveal God's character and pursue that fruit of being 6M people. Paul's second point is, I think, deliberately ironic. Since he tells us that the only way to enjoy freedom is to enslave ourselves to a new master. Paradoxically, the gospel of grace should draw us to use our freedom to become God's slaves. We can only be sanctified, that is, made more like Jesus, through confessing our powerlessness to free ourselves. Sinful desires find root in spiritual no-man's land. And we prevent them from growing by allowing God's indwelling spirit to occupy that space. Paul's third point builds on this idea. Since the gospel that brought us freedom from sin's penalty also grants us freedom from sin's power. 
good works don't save us. But now that we are saved, we are free to do good works. Works that are motivated by love and gratitude. Works that bear fruit. And Paul's final point is that since as Christians we are indwelt by God's Spirit, we should no longer exhibit bad fruit. The kinds of things that he lists in verses 19 to 21. Since all of those things aren't defined by love. And it's clear from the contrasting lists that we can choose to live in two ways. We can live for ourselves or we can live for others. The attitudes and actions that Paul lists in verses 19 to 21 seem at first glance to be a random list of actions that we can immediately see simply fly in the face of God's commands and desires for humanity. But when we think about them a little more closely, what links them is that they are all actions that flow out of a desire to live at the centre of our own universe. People are used for sexual gratification. Religion is used to manipulate situations to our own end. Our relationships are full of strife. We take aspects of God's good creation and we use them for our own ends. But the alternative, says Paul, is to live a life shaped by the Spirit, the fruit of which is evidenced by the way that others benefit from seeing our transformation. The fruit of the Spirit, in contrast, are self-evidently good. But when Paul was writing, that is not how some of his readers would have seen these qualities. Love, patience, humility, self-control. I'm not sure that they've ever really been valued in contexts where the strongest survive. In places where people feel that looking after number one is all that matters. But Paul sets out a vision that is radically different. He sets a completely different set of community values in front of the people. And it's precisely that kind of radically different vision that this series seeks to promote as we continue to work out what it means to be God's 6M people in our time and in our place. In a few moments, Gemma's going to come and lead us in a time of prayerful reflection But before we get to that, I'd like to remind you of a poem that Rosie Stewart wrote and it was included in focus at the conclusion of our Living the Fruit of the Spirit series. She wrote these words in response to verses 22 to 23. And with this poem, I'll finish. What do you find in the core of me? What is the rawest part of me? What is the zest of me? What do you find if you peel back the peel? Or pick away the pith? If you separate the segments of me? What juice runs through me? What stone sits inside me? If you plant me, what would grow from me? Am I bitter like Naomi? Are there sour notes in me? Has my flavour faded? What are the ingredients of me?